Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly sermon podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. So Chuck and I love to do pilgrimages, and we walk a lot together. And one of our spiritual practices when we walk is we pray together, we memorize scripture, we declare creeds, and we memorize lots of different prayers And one of them is a Celtic prayer that we pray, and it goes something like this. Lord, I come to you this day. I am not a great gift to offer you. It is my coming that is my gift. For who holds within themselves any worthy offering to the God who owns the universe? But to come to you while the world is moving away is really my only gift of worth. And so I come. Ignore me or use me. Save me or spend me. Use me or set me by. I am yours. We have another prayer that was from the 1600s, Blaise Pascal, and it goes like this. Lord, let us not henceforth desire life except to spend it for you, with you, and in you. You alone know what is good for us. Do therefore what seems best to you. Give to us or take from us. Conform our wills to yours. Grant with humble and perfect submission And with holy confidence, we may receive the divine orders of your eternal providence and may equally accept all that we receive from you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We've been praying that prayer for almost four years now. I'll give you the context of it because it will tell you how it defined our life. I was a pastor in Greenwich, Connecticut, and uh, we'd been there for 11 years. We were at the peak of the church's history. The church is almost 300 years old. Uh, we had a campus in Greenwich, we'd planted one in Stamford, and we were getting ready to do another one in Westchester. Had my staff together, I could have stayed there for the next 10, 11 years and retired very comfortably, and the Lord said, leave. He said, it's time for you to go to do something else and turn it over to some younger leaders so they can lead for a while. Uh, and he gave us unsealed orders. We didn't know what that meant. Uh, in or the sealed process- orders. Oh, sorry, sealed orders. Uh, We didn't know what that meant at the time, but we were to go, and he would show us when we'd finally arrived where we were supposed to be. Um, That led to a process where the Lord said to us, get unencumbered. I was uh, journaling one morning in my journal, and the Lord said, Chuck, it's time to get unencumbered. Now, I don't know the last time you've had somebody use that word for you. That's not a rare word in everyday English, or had the Lord Lord say it to you. And... The amazing thing is I was ministering somewhere else in either the U.S. or around the world. I don't remember where I was, but I do remember writing in my journal, and the Lord said, Ingrid, it's time to get unencumbered. So I called Chuck that evening, and I said, I don't know what this means, because God said it's time to get unencumbered, and same exact word, and we knew that God was doing something. So we still owned a house in Nyack. We had lived there from 2000 to 2007. We'd never been able to sell it. We had rented it. We didn't know what it was for. We thought maybe this is where God was going to take us. We put it on the market on Friday. It was in contract by Monday. Uh, we were living in a 2,000 square, or a 5,000 square foot house. It's the parsonage of the church we were in. You can imagine how much furniture was in there. So we started taking it and putting it out in our front lawn. We had a lot of Latino workers in the area who did the lawn care, and on the morning they'd come by with their trucks filled with uh, lawn mowers and everything else, and on the way home they would take good furniture and put it on top of that, uh, those lawn mowers. We knew it was going to a good home. But the hardest part for me was not leaving the ministry or leaving this house or leaving the furniture. I was leaving 5,000 plus books. Now, some of you are going, so what? Mike just had deep angst in his soul. Those are like your friends. They're the only things that don't talk back. Oh, when they do talk back, you skip that chapter. (laughs) And you're in control of that relationship. But God was preparing us for what was coming. And then in March of 2021, Chuck and I were down in Florida, and we were just finishing a walk, and we were just finishing that Blaise Pascal prayer. 
Lord, may I not henceforth desire life or health except to spend it for you, with you, and in you. You alone know what is best for us. Do there, do you, know, you alone know what is good for us. Do therefore what seems best to you. Give to us or take from us. Just as we prayed that prayer, we got a phone call from our daughter-in-law. She said, something's wrong with Charles. Charles was two and a half years old. She said, we're not sure what it is. They think there's fluid on his brain. And she said, can you come home? And 10 minutes later, she called back and said, you know what? Let's find out what's going on. He's at Westchester Medical Center. We'll let you know what's happening. And within a couple hours, we got a text from our son that just said, please come home. And Charles was diagnosed with a brain tumor. It was malignant. He had brain cancer. Give to us or take from us. You know, that's okay. Give to us or take from us when it's a ministry, when it's a house, uh, when it's furniture, when it's books, but not Charles. That wasn't in the equation of what we were thinking in that prayer. And it set us on a long process. Charles had to have surgery and four rounds of chemo and lots of interventions. And in that time, we had to process loss in our life. A lot of things changed for us. We became the primary caregivers for his younger brother, Grant. And we went through this process of thinking about what does loss do in our lives? What's its role? How do we survive it? And beyond survive it, how do we come out thriving in it? How is God going to use this? How are we going to maintain hope in the process? And so we've been on this whole aspect of discovering what is the role of loss. Now, that's significant because loss is inevitable for all of us. Uh, inevitable, it's already happened to all of us. It would be a really powerful but very hard process if we just started a line and you came up here and began listing the loss in your life. I think within two or three people, we would all be in tears. Might not even take that many people. Because living in a broken world, there's lots of loss. But then you think about this period that we've been in. I don't think there's a time, I'm, I'm sure, there's not a time in history where the globe has experienced such significant loss together. There are local places and regions that have had incredible loss, but not like the globe, global community has experienced in these days. If ever Paul's words that the world, the earth, is groaning for the redemption of men, right now it's happening in our world. And so we want to process this idea of loss. Why? Because if we don't deal honestly with our loss, no matter how great the level of loss is, we will remain emotionally immature and one of the questions that's being asked right now, what is the future of the church once we've gotten through this period, is the only church that's going to have the ability to have impact in the world in which we live is going to be the church that processes the loss that we've been in. We can't just tuck it away and move on. Because if we're going to be people of hope, we have to be people that have found that hope in dealing with our own loss. If you're going to deal with the story of loss, you have to go to this character named Job. He's the best one to help us think through this process of loss. So I just want to go through a few elements of his story with you. And at the end, we're going to ask, so what, now what, and apply this to our lives and where we're at. Before I speak, I just want to ask the Lord, this is the third time I'm preaching for supernatural energy that I will be as exciting as I was in the 815 service <laughs> and that his Holy Spirit would operate uh, in a fresh way. The, the, the donuts aren't kicking in yet, so I need Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you for this group that have gathered to honor your name and worship you. They deserve your best. Yes. And we always know that there's always a better preacher in the room. That's your Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, bring anointing on us to speak your word, bring anointing on all of our hearts to receive it, and do as only you can do. You can take one spoken word and apply it in 50 different directions in this room. Would you do that for each of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
The story of Job opens like this. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. This is the kind of person you want to have as a neighbor. The whole story is being set up to answer in many ways, or at least suggest it's going to answer the question, why do good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people? When someone is blameless and upright and fears God and turns from evil, you're expecting God to do something for them. We live in a meritocratic society. Whether we believe it or not, I think we subtly are Buddhist, all of us, we believe in karma, that you're going to get what you deserve in the end. But when you live life long enough, there's just so much that doesn't make sense. Uh, you have lead pastors who are living examples of this. So every time I get another message about something that Mike and Lisa are going through, I'm going, come on, Lord. There's people that I know that are blameless and have turned from evil. And I've gotten in Mike's face a few times and say, okay, tell me the sin that's going on in your life. That just said, No, I haven't done that. <laughs> if I did, he'd kick me and he'd have another sin that he'd have to deal with in the process. But you guys get it. There are good people in this world, and you're thinking, again? Job had all the signs of God's blessing. He had great wealth. His family's doing well. But there's still an element of his faith that's not completely developed. Because he keeps, I guess it would be, negotiating with God. He's concerned about the legacy of his children, but they seem to have these parties that disturb him. And Job goes and offers offerings and worship to the Lord. He says this, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. So Job continually did this. Dallas Willard says of Job, at this point he has a faith of propriety. He feels if he does all the right things, it's going to keep him covered. Then the story shifts into the throne room of God. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. This is the testing of Job's faith. We don't like that idea, but there's sometimes our faith is going to be tested. Now, we need to address this issue because some of you are saying, okay, Satan is in God's throne room. What's going on? If I were to adequately explain this text to you, we would be here for the next five hours. Alan would like that, but the rest of you wouldn't like that. He'd be with us the whole process. I'd have to explain the title of God in Scripture, Elohim, which is plural, which some of us as Christians have made to be the Trinity. That's a bad interpretation. That was the Semitic cosmology of the world that all of the spiritual beings came before God to get permission, which is true in the authority basis, but it's going to take a lot of time. I'd have to deal with the issue of Satan having authority to attack believers. All you'd have to do is go to Revelation 12 and 13 where it talks about the beast and the dragon been given authority to do harm to believers. Well, that will really mess up your theology quite a bit if you don't go there. And then I'd have to draw a whole banner of the sovereignty of God that God's not manipulating, but he is directing and there's providence and he allows things in. Uh, it would just be so hard. So let me just explain it really quickly. I don't believe the story of Job is an actual story of a man named Job. I believe it's an allegory. Now, some people get really scared. Can there be allegory in the Bible? And it's true. Why do I believe that? I have to read stories like this through what I know about what Scripture says descriptively about God. And knowing God's love for his children, he wouldn't be in heaven rolling the dice with Satan for one of his sons and daughters. That's just not the God I know. That's not the God we just sang about. 
So why is this, this written this way? It's to give us an understanding that suffering is not from the hand of God. Suffering is from a dark kingdom. Yes, God in His sovereignty pulls back His covering on us because He's doing something far more significant in the suffering than we would have experienced in the victory. Scriptures are giving us a real picture of the world, not simply a triumphant one that's good on Sunday but is very terrible when you're facing a difficult time in life. Story goes on. Satan gets his permission. He tacks everything of Job's wealth, his family. There's nobody left. This is the ultimate suffering story. And in the process, we're looking to see what Job's response is going to be. Will he do what Satan has said? Will he curse God? And the response is powerful. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. Worship out of the place of brokenness is deep and rich. There have been times when I have stood before a missionary who was losing a lot of their life because of what they were experiencing where God had called them, and the tears ran. They almost filled my hands, and that was like the truest worship that I've ever experienced. Because it was coming out of the place of known loss. This is what's happening to Job. There's a shift happening in his faith. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. There's another courtroom scene. Satan says, Okay, you took the hedge off. Let me strike at his body. You see, Suffering is one thing, but cumulative suffering, especially in the physical body, just eventually wears you down. And Satan's going to make his point to take it to the furthest place. Now, don't try to look at this logically. Why does God allow it to happen and these things? Just know that God's always telling a better story. Always telling a better story than the one we see up front. Job is scraping the wounds off of himself then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Um, don't try this at home. This is one of those warnings on the label. Remember, this is an allegory. No smart man would ever say that. You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. You gotta laugh, or you would cry. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job is moving to a faith of desperation. I borrow that from Dallas Willard, who talks about the life of Job. You see, Faith and hope don't become something until you're really in a place where faith and hope is all you have. This is desperation. Uh, I'd like to read the next 40 chapters for you, but it would take a little long. You know some of the subtext of the story. Job has four friends that are worse than his wife. They try to figure out the why of suffering. And all of us, at some point, go into the story of Job thinking it's going to give us the why of suffering. But it never gives us the why of suffering. It gives us the how to endure when we're experiencing the loss of suffering. And we get to the end of the story, and Job has had all these conversations with God that are so rich and helpful of us understanding how to stay engaged in, with God in the conversation when we're suffering, and it ends this way. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. 
Hear, and I will speak, and I will question you, and you make it known to me. And then these words. I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. He's moved from a faith of propriety to a faith of desperation. Now it's a faith of sufficiency. God is everything for him. And in these words, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So what? We're not done with loss. It could almost overwhelm us if we thought about the potential loss that any one of us could experience this week. And it might not even be the gravity of the loss. It may be the cumulative. You may be sitting here thinking, I can't even compare my story to some other people's loss. I read a very helpful book during this time by Jerry Sitzer. It's called A Grace Disguised. One day he was driving his van after doing ministry. And he was hit head-on by a drunk driver. Killed his mother, his wife, and his four-year-old daughter in one shot. Three generations of important women to his life. He was left with three kids. He talks about the darkness and the movement. Talks about what went on in his own pursuit of God. It's an amazing book. I don't know how he wrote it. I think he wrote it only four years after experiencing this loss. But he said people would come to him and say, well, I have problems, but they're not like yours. And he says in the book, it's so powerful, it doesn't matter your loss. Loss is loss. So I used to think that I didn't have loss in my life because as a pastor, I walked with people that had incredible loss. I stood there with a couple who couldn't have anybody else because the grief was so great while we were putting their young child in a styrofoam coffin in the ground. I was there when the woman lost her seventh baby in a row. I was there when the beloved husband who gotten sick, not expecting it, passed in the night. I was there with the parents who got the call that their kid had been in an accident and was in the emergency room. I was there when the person said, she said, that's it. She's not going to be in relationship with me anymore. I've been there when the parent got the news that the adult child said, that's it. You're never going to see the grandkids again. See, because of all those cumulative losses, I didn't see my own loss. Yeah, I had experienced loss. We were missionaries in Mali. We were caught in coups. We've had bandits around our car, beating on our car while our kids were in the back seat. We've had every type of disease possible. We left our extended family for eight years to live in Africa, to be the presence of Jesus there. Came back from Africa. We're only in the country for three days. I was out running. I was hit by a car going 50 miles an hour. I was flipped into the windshield and went 30 feet up and 70 feet out. Yeah, there's been loss, but comparatively to others, it just didn't seem like a lot. But going into the depth of the loss that we've experienced now, I'm realizing it doesn't matter the level of the loss. Loss is loss. At the end of this period of COVID, whatever the new world looks like, it's the people that have processed loss the best that are going to be the bright, shining light for this world. I love how God speaks. Um, actually, our grandson, Charles, is having a, just finished a five-hour MRI to see if there's any more traces of cancer. He has to do that every three months now. So I wanted to check in to see what was there, and my first email was an advertisement from ASICS. It said, darker nights require more light. Isn't that great? Darker nights require more light. Has there ever been a darker time on our globe? Where's the light going to come from? It's the people that have processed their loss and a sustained connection with God in that loss. Peter says this to the church, be prepared at all times to give a reason for the hope that's within you. That passage makes no sense when everything is going well in your life. 
when I'm pastoring a flourishing church and I'm driving my Audi convertible and I'm having the time of my life doing ministry, I don't have people coming up to me and saying, Chuck, what's the reason for the hope within you? I had all the toys in life. But a lot of people are asking, since Charles has been diagnosed with a sickness, what's the reason for the hope that's within you? That's the so what. Ingrid's going to talk about the know what's that will, now what's that will help us get through to the next stage. So what do we do in the wrestling? What do we do in the waiting? What do we do, as Ashley said, in the tension? Because there's tension. I know who God is. I know what he says. I know what his word says about waiting and the posture of waiting. Psalm 37, Chuck and I put on, on the inside of our wedding bands. It was a part of scripture that so spoke to us about what it means to live as disciples, what it means to live in the waiting. And it says in Psalm 37, trust in the Lord and do good. Commit your way to him. Take delight in him. Trust him. Be still before him. Wait patient for, for him and do not fret. And that was just, that's been a bedrock of our life. But I'm going to be very honest with you. In these last six months, that has not been the posture of my heart. I have wrestled with God. I have lived in the tension. From what I know about God, but what I was feeling and experiencing. If I gave you a picture of my heart, it would have looked something like this. Desperate, disappointed, disheartened, depressed, disillusioned, depleted, fearful, anxious, fretting, overwhelmed and overcome, tired, hopeless, challenged, heartbroken, and incredibly, incredibly sad. That was a picture of my soul for the last five months. Now listen, I know the truth of who God is. I know that he hears my prayers. I know that he is attentive to me, to us. I know he could heal Charles on the spot. I knew all of that, but there was a tension within because God wasn't answering yet. What do you do in the waiting and in the struggle when you're not getting the answer that you were hoping for or the situation hasn't changed? And I said, God, I will honestly pour out my heart to you. I know my posture is not the posture that you have asked me to have. It's really hard for me in this tension and the wrestling, but I will pour out my heart to you. It's interesting in Psalm 77, I would often just read the Psalms because very often I didn't, I didn't even have the ability to pray because the pain, I was so overwhelmed with what was going on. But I would take scripture, and I would pray back scripture to God. And it says in Psalm 77 that I remembered God, but I was troubled. You don't expect to hear that. The psalmist is earnestly and sincerely crying out to God, and he knew God heard him, yet he was still troubled. The sense is, God, I know you're there, so why won't you help me the way I need help? I remember crying out to God and just saying, God, how long? How long? Why are all of these speed bumps? Why, when we thought Charles was almost through with it, we, we almost lost him? Why another speed bump, a speed bump? God, how long? And you know, as Christians, I know in my faith, and this is what I would pray with you if you came to me, you know, that we cry out to God, we know and sense he's heard us, and just have peace. God's heard your prayers. He's going to answer. But I think the more frustrating part comes when he doesn't. And it's a mystery. And it doesn't change at that moment when you hoped it was changed. My prayers are mostly groans, cries of desperation. Oftentimes, it was just tears, but I do believe that our tears are liquid prayers. He collects the tears of his children. I unabashedly and unashamedly would just send out daily pleas for people to pray. 
pray prayers that at the time I couldn't even pray. And Risen King Alliance Church was one of those places. And I would text Lisa, and I'd say, Lisa, please pray. Please have them praying. I was desperate. And I know there are people in this room that prayed for our little two-and-a-half-year-old. There are times when we're going through it that in and of ourselves, it feels like we don't even have words. We only have groans. But I made a conscious choice that as long as I had breath, I was going to cry out. As long as you have breath, cry out in your desperation. Psalm 116 says this, I love the Lord for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. Because he turned his ear, one commentator said, it's as if God bends down and he hears the groans from our lips. And so I said, God, I will cry out. And on the day of Charles's surgery, when they took his little head apart to take out that tumor, God said to me, Ingrid, start praising. And you write to everybody you know, and you say, let's just praise, because praise is going to change the atmosphere. And so I texted everybody who was in my phone at that moment, any emails that I knew of, I emailed people, and I said, let's just praise and Katie and Brian Torwalt had just come out with an album, and it came out of their suffering and pain, and the album was called Praise Before the Breakthrough. That became my anthem for the last, last six months. I said, God, I will choose to praise before the breakthrough, right up until, until God brings that through. And I don't know when that's going to be, but I am going to choose to praise you before the breakthrough. And then one of their other songs, they say the words, prophesy his promises. It says, when I only see in part, I will prophesy your promise. I believe you, God, because you finish what you start. I will trust you in the process. You finish what you start prophesy his promises. And so oftentimes when I couldn't even pray, I would just prophesy his promises. I would speak God's word back to him. Psalm 27, 13, I remember, I remain confident of this, that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And I would proclaim that. I would prophesy that out. Psalm 16, 8, I will always keep my eyes on the Lord, and with him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Took the words of Job that said, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. And then in Hebrews, Hebrews, 12, uh, Hebrews 6, 19, it says this in the message version. We who have run for our very lives to God have every reason to grab the promised hope with both hands and to never let go. It is an unbreakable spiritual lifeline, reaching past all of appearances, reaching past all circumstances, right into the very presence of God, where Jesus, running on ahead of us, has taken up his permanent post. Hold on to the rope of hope. And so I would prophesy, I would prophetically hold on to hope and I knew on the other end of hope, Jesus was there at the right hand of the Father, pleading on our behalf, pleading for little Charles. I held on to hope. Listen, Christian hope is not a simple matter. You know, some people just think, well, because we're Christ followers, we can just easily hold on to hope. This is not a simple matter. It is not a simple thing to do. Hoping in God through suffering may be the hardest thing that any of us will ever do. It's far easier to resign yourself to the pit than to keep waiting and trusting, singing and believing. Far easier to embrace cynicism than to go on hoping against hope. So much easier just to turn from God. It's so much easier just to fall into the pit of despair. I wasn't angry at God. I didn't turn my back on him, and I know he didn't turn his back on us. 
Where was I going to run? Where do you run? He has the words of eternal life. We had a, friend, a very good friend of ours from seminary, and he went back to Lebanon, and he was going to head this big Bible school in Lebanon. And he got there, and within months of starting that ministry, he died of, I think it was cerebral malaria, meningitis. And his wife, Denise, came back to Nyack uh, a year later just to say goodbyes and to process. And I just said, oh, Denise, how are you? And she said, I used to have prayer meetings, and it was called the Denise Dagger Prayer Meeting, but I never prayed a word. I couldn't. But I knew others were praying for me. She said, I've gotten to the point now where I can sit on God's lap, but I can't look him in the eye yet. And for five months, I felt like, God, where else do I run but to you? And I would be in his presence, and I would sit on his lap, but I had a really hard time looking into his eyes in the tension. And so I would preach to my soul. Vertical Worship has a song called Faithful Now. And it says, I will speak to my fear and I will preach to my doubt. You are faithful then and you'll be faithful now. I love that. I will speak to my fear and I will preach to my doubt. And so I would preach to my soul. Oh, my soul, why are you so downcast? Put your trust in God. Oh, my soul, bless the Lord. Remember all that he has done. Remember all of his benefits. I would preach to my soul and say, remember how God has gotten us through. Remember all the times that God showed up. Remember how he has protected us and our children and Chuck in that accident where for an hour once the police found me, I didn't know if he was dead or alive. And my faith was the, what he's called proprietary faith, where I was basically said to God in that hour driving to the trauma center, like, I don't get it, God. We've done everything you've asked us to do. We went to Mali, West Africa. We sent our children to boarding school. I've served you. I've done everything you've asked. I've obeyed, and this is how you repay your children? That's what I told God. I'm very honest with God. And God said, Ingrid, this has nothing to do with what you've done for me. It has everything to do with do you trust me? That I am God and that I am good. So I would preach to my soul. So cry out to God and whatever, where are, you know where you are. I don't know, but I can imagine in a room this size, there are those of you who are waiting for the results of a test or in the midst of sickness or a treatment or something that might not even be, according to doctors, something that can be helped. Or you're in loss of losing a child or unable to get pregnant or somebody came to us this morning and just said he just lost his wife six weeks ago and he just stood there and wept with us. Loss of a dream, loss of a relationship, a wayward child, whatever it might be. Be honest with God, but praise him before the breakthrough. Choose to praise him before the breakthrough. Prophesy his promises and preach to your soul. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Following the message the Lord gave us about getting unencumbered, it was April and we were making the transition to my senior associate, um, getting prepared to move to our one-bedroom apartment. The Lord said, don't raise any money. You have to trust me for the next year. I will provide for you. I was out by our fire pit one night, back country of Greenwich, beautiful area. You can see the steeple of the church. The sun was going down. Just a glorious night, and immediately in this ear, I heard these words, what, are you an idiot? Why would you leave all of this and go into the unknown? And God, in his graciousness, immediately, sometimes he makes me wait for his confirmation to see what I'm going to do to respond to the words of the evil one. He said, oh, my son, you have no idea what I have prepared for you. And I was journaling 
somewhere else. We weren't together a lot. We were, I was traveling a lot and ministering, and I started writing in my journal, this is ridiculous. God is doing amazing things in Greenwich. The church is thriving. I love being able to travel around the world and minister to leaders and missionaries, and why would we leave this? This is silly, is what I, and I said, in God, in your economy, this makes no sense whatsoever. And the Lord said in my spirit, oh, my daughter, you have no idea the things that I have prepared for you. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The next 18 months were the good part of it. Just incredible. Over 200,000 miles, 15 countries, five continents, ready to go to the sixth continent, all kinds of blessing coming in news of a second grandson coming, um, just really saying, okay, this is great, Lord. And the Lord provided over that time in amazing ways. Then COVID hit. All of that ministry came to a screeching halt. Six trips were canceled. Everything went virtual. But we still kept pressing into the Lord. Uh, the next grandson came. The Lord gives. But then my father died. The Lord takes away. Then my sister, who's five years younger than me, died. The Lord takes away. Because of their two deaths, and my mom has advanced dementia and doesn't even know us right now, is in a center, I had to liquidate the family homestead. Exiles on exile. In a one-bedroom apartment, that was maybe one of the corner pieces of identity location that we had in our life. Then the Lord gave another grandson. And then the news of Charles. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Successful surgery. The Lord gives. News that it's the worst kind of malignant tumor you could have. Four seasons of chemotherapy. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Advancement so he could come home for one day in five months of being in the hospital. Almost dying in the fourth round of chemo. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. I really feel good right now that I can say the last part of this story is the Lord gives. Throw the picture up there. That's Charles last week. His hair is coming back. He's getting his balance. Uh, kid's incredibly intelligent. We're not being recorded, so I can say this. One of our Korean nurses was a strong prayer. I gave her my prayer book, and she said, I know this boy is going to be badass one day. <laughs> badass for the kingdom of God. But even as I share this celebration, there's a little bit of sadness that comes over me because some of you have stories that it didn't end this way. It's harder to celebrate now because I know other people don't get always to celebrate. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Hang on to him. He's hanging on to you. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Gabe's going to sing a song for us that has a lot of the declarations that Ingrid has given to us. Allow this to minister to your soul.
picture someone gave me in an earlier service was it's always hard in the hallway that, that, that place of waiting that place of tension always hard in the hallway and it's easy to begin to believe that we are forsaken Job was certain he was forsaken here he was relatively innocent but feeling completely forsaken, only to find out at the end he was not forsaken at all. See, you and I, it may feel like we're forsaken, but, but we're not. How do I know that? Because I know who was forsaken. See, Jesus was forsaken so that we would never be forsaken. Jesus, who wasn't just relatively innocent, who was completely righteous, was rejected by the Father so that we will never be rejected by the Father. So what I'd like to ask of you, I'd like you to stand with me. I'd like you, it's always weird in the COVID era, but if you could hold the hand of somebody near you, if we could sort of connect as community. It's one of the things that I've found is no one needs friends like Job but we all need a community in our times of comfort. And what I'd like to do is I'd like for us to proclaim a commitment together. 
we are the last service that we have today and we are putting a stake in the ground together that we are not forsaken. But our commitment has to be those three things that Ingrid gave to us. And this is what I believe we must hold on to. And we're not only for our losses, but for each other. To praise even before the breakthrough. Or to praise till the breakthrough. To prophesy the promises. You see, every promise of God is yes and amen. God is infinite. He's already in the future. He already, it's already real to him. And it preached to our own souls. I have found so many Christians who do not know how to preach to their souls. I tell you, when the enemy comes, you have to preach to your soul. Sometimes you have to, you have to bind your soul and loose your soul just like you bind or loose a demon. So here, let's do this together. Would you, would you close your eyes with me and make this commitment? Lord, I commit to praise before the breakthrough. To praise until the breakthrough. To prophesy your promises. And to preach to my soul. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. In Jesus' name. Now, before you let go, just see yourself putting a stake in the ground right here. That you are. You're seeing the Spirit heal the holes in your soul. And you're seeing the Spirit strengthen your soul. I mean, you have the fullness of Christ within you. What he's doing is he's making a container that can hold all the hope, all the love, all the joy, all the self-control so that the future he has for you becomes a reality to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.